0: Pray with me. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The gospel lesson this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. <clears throat> then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I do not scatter.
1: Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of the Psalms, and specifically the 123rd Psalm. So listen now for this ancient wisdom, this ancient prayer that still speaks to us today. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt, Our soul has had more than its fill of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, before we enter into the world of this psalm, I think we need to pause for just a moment over the Hebrew superscription that precedes it. Beginning with the 120th psalm and continuing through the 134th one, each of the psalms in that section of the Psalter begins with the same words, a song of ascents. These 15 psalms, similar in pattern, similar in length, similar in cadence and content, have clearly been grouped together for a reason— And as students and followers of God's word, we are invited to ponder what the reason for this grouping might be. So as we start a journey into the 123rd Psalm, how does this ancient song lift us up? How do these words help us as disciples to ascend? Let us hold that question in our minds and in our hearts as we proceed along the path of this short but powerful song of Israel. After the superscription, Psalm 123 breaks down into two distinct halves. All four verses of the psalm are clearly spoken from a human perspective, specifically the perspective of a servant. One who is subservient to another, one who answers to a more powerful master, one who is not in complete control of his or her own destiny. But the first two verses gaze upwards to heaven, while the final two are spoken from the dirt floor of life on earth. So let's look at the first two verses to begin. The first verse sets the stage with an upward gaze. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. These words of praise are addressed to God, and the person praying these words knows that they are but a humble servant to the God who sits on the heavenly throne. That servant knows that he or she can make no demand. They have no real power, no real control over their destiny. So what they have is a plea, a plea for divine mercy. But they know that they can do nothing but wait for an answer to that plea. If they are to receive any mercy at all, it will be God's decision to make. And it will come in God's own time when God alone is ready and willing to offer mercy and help. This arrangement, we have to say, seems just fine to these servants of this psalm, these handmaidens of God. They know very well that God has all the power, but that sits well with their souls. In fact, they would not have it any other way. The Reformer John Calvin was that kind of servant. As the pastor and administrator of the Protestant Church in Geneva, Calvin withstood all kinds of challenges to his ministry. At the same time he was enduring those challenges, he was enduring incredible physical pain and suffering. From surviving letters and other writings, we know a fair amount about John Calvin's physical maladies. At various times, he suffered from malnutrition, fevers, malaria, hemorrhoids, anemia, kidney stones, and renal colic. He also had gout, and sometimes it got so painful that he had to preach sitting down. He endured frequent constipation, an enlarged spleen, heartburn, and indigestion, at least one roundworm infestation, migraine headaches, nervous dyspepsia, and chronic insomnia. Calvin died at the age of 55, probably from tuberculosis, although some experts suspect it could have been subacute bacterial endocarditis. Now, other than that, he was pretty much okay. And so while we might expect that someone like John Calvin, who had devoted his life to be a servant of the master on the throne in heaven, that Calvin might be a little bit annoyed at how God might be treating him. But we find that that was not the case. In fact, Calvin took great solace and comfort in the fact that the sovereign God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was in, as Calvin saw it, complete control of the world. In his famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin freely admitted that earthly life is plagued with dangers and perils. Innumerable are the evils that beset human life, Calvin wrote, innumerable too the deaths that threaten it. Amid these tribulations must not a person be most miserable, since but half alive in life he weakly draws his anxious and languid breath as if he had a sword perpetually hanging over his neck. It was a pretty bleak picture, but Calvin never lingered there, and he bids all Christians not to linger there either, because it is God, not us, who is in control. And God, Calvin said, is strong enough to turn everything ultimately to the good. When that light of divine providence has once shone upon a godly person, Calvin wrote, that person is relieved. And set free, not only from the extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing him before, but from every care. He may dread what may come, but he still fearlessly dares to commit himself to God. His solace, Calvin continues, is to know that his heavenly Father so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, so governs by his wisdom, that nothing in the world can happen unless God determines for it to happen. And that, Calvin believed, is the greatest comfort that we can have. The fact that we have been received... This is a quote from Calvin, received into God's safekeeping and entrusted to the care of God's angels. Then Calvin appropriately punctuated his argument with the words of another psalm, the one that proclaims, for God will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. You will not fear the terror of night. This is the comfort and the certainty that we find in the first two verses of Psalm 123. Yes, the servant proclaims there is a great imbalance of power. There is a great divide between the identity of God and the identity of mere humans. God is in control and we are not. But the true servant of God rests comfortably under that power structure because she wants God to have that power. It is the only place we would want it to be. We can feel safe under the hand of God's promise and providence. We can feel safe in the hands of God's power because we know that the greatest power in the universe is held by one who acts in all things with love, with mercy, and in the best interest of the servant. Even, we say, when God's hand is reprimanding us or pushing us in a new but somewhat uncomfortable direction, we can still feel safe and secure because we know that God will never use divine power to denigrate or humiliate the servant, only to elevate only to honor and only to save the servant. That kind of power is always good. And that is why we as people of faith can still answer today the answer of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, a statement of faith that arose roughly around the time that Calvin lived. That first question said with assurance and confidence, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Now, turning to the second half of the Psalm, the picture is not so rosy And the servants are not nearly so confident. In their earthly lives, the servants of this psalm are being subjected to much less benevolent powers. Verses 3 and 4 are cries from the underside of life, pleas from people who feel powerless to resist human forces of selfishness, greed, arrogance, and pride. And the servants, quite frankly, have had it. To use their words, they have had more than enough, more than enough contempt, more than enough scorn, more than enough of the arrogance and disrespect and abuse of the people who are in control. And by that they meant those who had the money, those who had the influence, those who held the reins of power in their world. These servants of God who are being subjected to this injustice are crying out to their heavenly master for relief and release from the oppression of their earthly masters. The preacher John Redhead, whose Sermons at my home church of First Presbyterian Church of Greensboro may be pushing 50 years old or more, but they remain a continual source of wisdom for me. And he describes well in one particular sermon the kind of people who were abusing their earthly power in the world of this psalm. The problem, Redhead said, was ego. To be rich in ego, Redhead preached, is to be too rich in our view of ourselves. And he continued, we all know people who are rich in ego, and we do not like them. They are proud and haughty and conceited. They have an overwhelming sense of their own importance. Those who are rich in ego are the self-satisfied, the self-sufficient, the self-seeking, and the self-centered. Redhead then summed up people like this with a literary reference. It was a reference to the character Edith in a novel by Martha Ostenso called Gardenias in Her Hair. Edith, the novelist had written, was a little country bounded on the east and the west, on the north and the south, by Edith. As servants of Christ, we all can understand and relate to what it might be like to be at the whim of someone like Edith, someone who seems to be acting in all respects out of ego or arrogance or concern only for self. But I think we are also called to be on the lookout for situations when other servants like us, our brothers and sisters, both near or far, are being subjected to this kind of injustice. We may be quick to say we've had enough when we are the ones who feel like we're suffering, but we also need to say it for others when we see it happening to them. A good case in point can be found, I think, in some of the recent demonstrations by people of color in our nation. Now hear me clearly when I say that not everything these movements have said or done or preached has been healthy or helpful. For example, I am in no way trying to excuse violence or dismiss hatred that may have been affiliated with those movements. But I do believe that we are called as people who seek to follow the good shepherd, as humble servants who believe in the sovereignty of a God whose heart is always with the poor and the oppressed, we are called to try our best to at least understand that the intensifying outcry over racial inequality and injustice in our country is the same cry that is being lifted in this ancient Psalm. For centuries, people of color in our nation have felt mistreated by the arrogance and ego and self-interest of misguided people who believe that a person's worth varies with the color of their skin. People who have also used their worldly power to enforce and inflict that sinful heresy upon others. At the very least, we can try to understand why long-suffering people are now crying out that they have had enough, more than enough of bigotry and prejudice. And are we not, as servants of God, called to use our own voices to join with them in saying that we can no longer condone or ignore the painful realities of their suffering? Should we not be crying out to God, with the psalmist, asking for mercy not just for us, but for our brothers and sisters who are in pain as well. Now, I'll admit I've never read Stephen King's novel, The Green Mile, but I have seen the movie. And I can easily recall the lament of the inmate John Coffey a black man who was unjustly accused, tried, and convicted of murder by a racist judicial system that saw little more than the color of his skin. And there on death row, as the painful injustices of life continued to multiply upon him and around him, John Coffey confided a deep lament to his guards there on death row. I'm tired, boss, he said. Tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. Mostly, I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel and hear in the world every day. There's too much of it. And it's like pieces of glass in my head all the time. And I will say that I am tired too. I think you are tired too. Tired of all the scorn, tired of all the contempt, tired of the way that power is arrogantly abused by people who use it just to serve themselves but then somehow convince themselves That they are doing the right thing. I think our collective soul and spirit has had enough, more than enough. But that is where the psalm ends, as if it is all that the psalmist can muster in that moment. Which brings us back to the initial question that I posed how does this painful cry of a psalm lift us up? How does this psalm draw us heaven, heavenward? How is this ancient poem a song of a sense? I don't know the answer for sure, but I do know a possible answer. And it is the one that I choose for myself because it makes sense to me. Three times a year at the time of the great festivals, the people of Israel would turn from whatever it was they were doing, whatever it was they were experiencing, whatever it was that they were facing, and they would turn and they would make their way up to Jerusalem. And it didn't matter where they lived, it was always up. You might be traveling down from the very summit of Mount Nebo or even the top of Mount Sinai. But if you were going to Jerusalem, you were always going up because you were going to the place where God was and is and will be always. Now, many think that this group of 15 psalms were ones that would be sung by the pilgrims who were making that journey up to the home of God, to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, to pray, to worship, and to seek God's mercy in the hope that their suffering would be lessened and that their joy would increase. And that is why these songs of ascents are also known to many, as the pilgrim songs. One of the things that we must do as servants of our heavenly master, as pilgrims on the way, is to offer to God not only our joyful praises and hopes, but also our painful laments. And one of the things that we should rightly say on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of others, is that we really have had enough of injustice. We have had enough of arrogance and ego and contempt. We want something better. We want to be something better. And so we turn and we walk putting one foot in front of the other, making our way slowly but deliberately up the path, hoping that with each step we might rise together. And as we go, we sing songs that pilgrims sing, hoping that by following in the footsteps of Christ, by being honest with ourselves, honest with each other, and honest with God, that somehow we might make our way just a little bit higher, just a little bit closer to the Lord our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.